0: Hello, everyone, welcome to the Dorfman Theatre. We're going to be talking in tonight's platform about uh, Annie Baker's show, John. Uh, my name is Dan Rebelato, and I'm pleased to introduce to you the uh, designer of the show, Chloe Lamford, and the director, James McDonald. Can I ask quickly how many people have already seen the show? And how many people are going to see it probably tonight? Okay, so it's about 50 50. We'll try. Not to spoiler Spoiler the show show too much, but I I will say the biggest spoiler has already happened, which is the set. When you go and see the show, you'll you'll be faced with a curtain as you sit down. It's a big reveal. So anyway, that has been uh, uh, spoiled for you already. Um, But James, can I, I start with you? Can I ask you what drew you to this play? What made you want to direct it here? Um,
1: I'd done a play of Annie's before actually. I did *Circle Mirror Transformation* for the Royal Court uh, with Chloe. Um, how long ago was that? Three, four Three years, years ago. Three years, yeah. And um, I'd met Annie in New York and loved her writing. I hadn't actually seen any of it at that point, but I'd just picked up that play because a lot of friends had told me it was amazing, and I did think it was. Right. So I got to know Annie through the process of working on that play, and. Um, Delivering it in a strange little community hall in Hagerston. We did that play, and that was rather lovely. So um, I kept in touch with her, and she asked me to do this one. And um, this one I had seen. I saw it in New York um, (coughs) at a point where I didn't think I was particularly going to be directing it. I was imagining that production might come over, and it didn't for various reasons. And so I read it again and just absolutely fell in love with it. I think it's her greatest play so far and they're all very good. Right. So it was a very it's 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 rare as a director actually that you pick something up and you just know in 10 15 pages that you would love to spend more time in the world of this particular play and that was the sensation I got very strongly.
0: And I wonder if you could say something uh, about the genre of the play, because it seems to me that one of the experiences of watching it over, over its run is you keep slightly adjusting your sense of what sort of play we're watching. At some points, it's kind of a comedy. At some points, it's a kind of really searing domestic drama. At other points, it seems like it's a supernatural thriller. How did you find your way through that? How would you describe the play? Um, well, I think, I
1: think on its most obvious level, it's a character piece for four char- about four people. Mm-hmm. And they're all beautiful and complex people. And the, the, the play rings a series of surprises on who they are. Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, it feels like she wanted to push um, into the territory of the supernatural. Um, in particular with this play, and she herself is a supreme rationalist. Mm. She's someone who absolutely construes the world psychologically and in terms of how people behave and why they behave like they behave. Um, so for that person <laughs> um, right. to be looking at the supernatural as a subject is, is, is I think, fascinating that she's chosen to do that that she's chosen to push into territory which she herself maybe doesn't believe in. Right. But within the, within the um, frame of the play, within the construct of the play, uh, those things can be true or may be true. Yeah. Um, she's also, I think, fascinated in this play by ambiguity by things having more than one meaning and that's an immensely rewarding thing to work on as a director Hmm. um, with actors and um, it just makes the, the, the doing of the thing more complicated because you want to hold everything in the physical world of the play and the mental world of the play open to two different meanings at the same time. Um, so Murtis, to take the central character, can be both a crazy old landlady, mm. but also some kind of strange mega or you know, um, potent, um, larger than life figure who's sort of helping people in in other ways.
0: Um, Chloe, can I turn to you? Because James just said the play has four characters, and. Of course, that's literally true, but it really feels as well like there's a fifth character, which is the house and you're responsible for the realisation of this house. So could you talk about your first encounter with this play and how you started to build up this kind of extraordinary environment for the action to take place in?
2: Well, there's a beautiful amount of detail in the play itself where Annie's written a list of incredible little figures and characters that need to dwell in the house. So the, the personality sort of comes out of the text itself. So responding to that was one thing. Mm-hmm. And she also sent us this tiny package of photographs. They were very small photographs. <laughs> of a real place that she stayed in Gettysburg. Oh, uh, OK. Which I fell massively in love with because there's such eclectic... Um, mixture of things and there's various homages in, in this version of the house. And also they, t- they talk about it so much right. in the play that there's just a hundred clues so really you just keep building and building up all the layers of everything mm-hmm. that we needed the audience to feel important or not important in the space so things are placed very carefully so that mm. you can engage with them in the right.
0: I guess mm. would be true. Uh, Now, uh, I'm not a designer, so I, I don't think like a designer, but it, I, I imagine that one of the things I associate with your designs is a sort of uh, an, a, a beautiful sense of taste. And then we have this, <laughs> which is very uh, kitsch, I would say. Um, and that's, that's, that strikes me as being an interesting thing, that the, a designer with very good taste creating something that doesn't have very good taste. What do, what's kitsch doing for you in this design? I actually really love kitsch things.
2: <laughs> because actually somebody sat down and made it or designed it or thought about it, and then put things together in a really clunky or strange or naff or brilliant way. But mm. the fact that these are all ultimately designed by or someone or created by someone. I'm like, that's nuts. That's nuts that this little lamp's got like a naked boy with wings on it. Like, that's pretty special. <laughs> um, so for me, it's like a complete pleasure to kind of find all these weird knickknacks. And the amazing props department here ransacked all charity shops in <laughs> South London. <laughs> and we found those things, and some things have come from America, and putting it together has been amazing because you put together things in a way that, I don't know, that's maybe more human than... A tasteful, right. tasteful production. <laughs> I found it really exciting. For One
0: of the things I think I associate slightly with kitsch. I don't know if this is quite the right thing, but sometimes kitsch's bad taste is about its emotional intensity. Mm-hmm. That it sometimes it's excessively emotional, or it's or it's sentimental, like some of these things, or or it's mawkish in some way. Mm-hmm. And that actually does seem to be really interesting in terms of this play, because I was I was saying to you, James, before it came on, that my experience of watching it is that the emotion of the play creeps up on you Mm -hmm. and you think it's going to be this sort of, it might be this sort of slightly psycho story, but it ends up being this extraordinary story about why we need love Mm -hmm. and how horrible it is to be without it, I think. Um, And so this is, I suppose, a question for for Chloe, but James, you might want to come in on this as well. I mean, emotionally, how do you how do you put emotions into a set?
2: We talked a lot about little families that are in the set and also how eyes look at you. And there's like a massive supporting cast. Like everyone that comes on stage, there's still like another 50 little characters around them and the kind of combination of all their little personalities I think makes something mm. really, really beautiful. Yeah. We spent a lot of time moving dolls' eyes or heads or... how I don't know how <laughs> they... Sort of look and support. Got very attached to lots of them, so I think there probably is like a weird combination yeah. of personalities that are making a thing.
1: I mean, the play plays off forms we kind of know, doesn't it? Yeah, a bit, yeah you think it's going to be arsenic and old lace, or you think it's mm. going to be yeah. that sort of play, or you think it's going to be a ghost story sort of play, and the people in the play are fascinated by ghost stories or scary stories, as they call them. So she's referring to those things. Hmm. And it felt like we had to make a room, didn't we, and we talked about this a lot, that, what, that both did the kind of kitsch end of it, which is joyful and highly coloured and slightly sentimental, hmm. um, but it also had to go right to the haunted house end of things, which is dark and scary and slightly creepy, and that the, the room had to be a sort of transformational space right that could do both those things and I think that's very true of Annie's work that Mm she 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 seek I mean it was true of Circle Mirror wasn't it which is a much more neutral space it was just a a boring old community hall but it had to be what it had to be something that allowed for transformation of people and things to occur
0: Uh, do you This might not be a question you you feel particularly interested in answering, but I wondered if you, where you connect this play with with kind of other traditions of playwriting. I suppose I was, I thought of things like Buried Child by Sam Shepard, Mm I was watching this. Uh, There is even, in fact, a little glass menagerie Mm -hmm. um, in that cabinet, and I kind of thought a bit about that that's that very heightened Tennessee Williams tradition? Or, or do you think this is just, when you direct, you just go, I'm just looking at this play in itself and trying to unlock it, at, unlock it as it is? I wouldn't be
1: surprised knowing Annie who's supremely clever if, mm. d- if those references are conscious. Yeah, I think as an American writer, you can't write, there is a cabinet full of glass menageries without right. knowing <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> there's a kind of history that you're banging off there. Right. Um, so I think, you know, and indeed she's referring to all theatre, isn't she? There's a whole kind of meta thing going on in this play with Murtis opening the curtains. Um, She's referring to um, how we connect as an audience with the thing that we're watching. Hmm. And in this room, obviously, you've got you know, a thousand creatures also watching the play from the other side of the proscenium. Mm. So she's fascinated by, and it's the, it's maybe the one central thing in the play, is, is the act of watching right. and what that means to us. So I think she's very, very aware of how that stuff feeds in theatrically.
0: For people who haven't seen it, this won't really be a spoiler because it the very first thing you see but uh, it's one of the features of this play that one of the four characters opens and closes the curtain between the act but Mm -hmm. also tells us that a new scene is happening by moving the 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 hands of the grandfather clock Um, and as you say that it allows us to sort of reflect on theatricality as well Um, but I suppose why her, do you think? Because in a sense, it could have been any of those characters to do that. What do you think it does to the play that she's the one who does that?
2: She's like the
0: keeper, isn't
1: she, of the play? Yeah, something? she's a kind of gay keeper. Well, and also in terms of what she does in the play, she's sort of Prospero. She's a magician right. on, on one level. She's the wise, wise she's the, We're on her island mm. um, and she's telling her story. And I suppose it's very typical of Annie to want to, make people powerful on stage who are not normally allowed to be powerful, mm. and to put worlds on stage which aren't usually deemed worthy of being put on stage. Right. So the flick, which was her last play, which was in this same space, um, featured three people cleaning up popcorn in a small cinema. Right. Um, which drove some audiences absolutely bananas. Why have we come to this play to watch people cleaning up popcorn? Um, But it's absolutely brilliant to be taken into a world which politically doesn't often make it onto a theatre stage, and I think that's equally true of this one and uh, most of her other works, so that's part of the project. I think it's a really political act to empower people who aren't normally seen to be powerful Right. For whatever reason,
0: um, Chloe. One thing that I suppose connects the kind of uncanny and kitsch and emotion and theatre is the figure of the doll,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but also mannequins and figurines and you know little angels and nymphs and so on. Um, they have such a powerful presence on this stage. What what is it about? Dolls that seem to have this peculiar, slightly unsettling presence, do you think?
2: Yeah. That is a big one. It's, I don't know, for me, I think there's something very fascinating about being a little girl and having a figure of a little woman or a little girl hmm. that doesn't grow or change. Right. That you dress up or you connect with. And one of the characters in the play has a massive connection to dolls, and that is. Super fascinating because it's sort of very subtle and complicated relationship to mm. these little objects, and she's very unsettled by them mm. because of her massive emotional connection. Mm.
0: Mm. And there's mm. a, I mean, there's a moment in the play, and I won't describe exactly what happens, but for for a lot of the play, they are these silent sentinels watching what happens. But there's a moment where the doll is actually brought into the action in a very extreme way, and it's a really shocking. Moment where it dolls seem to have this. Maybe I, this is just me, but <laughs> dolls seem to have this thing where they're halfway between being object and human. And I was just about
2: to say that about objects. They're right. more than an object. Yeah, they can't be an object because they're little personalities. So you have these huge emotional attachments to dolls if you right. have dolls when you're little. I suppose that then when you grow up, they change, and the object of them has got a memory attached to it, but they're sort right. of not what they used to be anymore and now they're sitting on a shelf and they might just be there for a very long time and not move.
1: There's a fantastic moment in the in the play where um, Mertis says, I always thought it would be wonderful to be a doll. And right. um, I was very aware the first time we did this with an audience that half the audience thought that was amazing. <laughs> and then her friend Genevieve says, you're quite wrong, dolls are... <laughs> horrible things. Mm, horrible <laughs> why time? would you want to be a doll? <laughs> um, and the other half of the audience was equally taken by that <laughs> thought. So, uh, yeah, they're very divisive. They, they sort of are yeah. complicated, I think, what we think about dolls. Definitely.
0: Um, uh, one of the reasons why this platform is at a slightly earlier uh, time than they normally are uh, is because this is a long show, I guess. It's about three and a quarter hours, something like that. And so it has an earlier start time, which has pushed us back. Um, it seems to me that is a really important part of its experience, actually. This is a a play that needs a sense of duration and just to really inhabit this room. Um, it, how did you work with that? How did you find the pace for this? Because I, I think it is extraordinary, the way it's... It's paced in performance. But how did you find that in, in rehearsal? If you look at
1: the script, there's a million pauses, silences, <laughs> weird pauses, <laughs> long silences. The, the Annie, the Annie is very, very um, precise about notating what she thinks the rhythm of the scenes are.
2: She takes time, not like any. She's else, obsessed is, with she, time yeah, and there's a whole...
1: Thing going on about time in this play. Yeah. In fact, there's one scene in the play which just accelerates time. Yeah. Hugely, um, without giving it away. So, it's a big thing of hers. But obviously, in rehearsal, you need to make choices about how long's a pause, how long's a yeah. silence, um, how fast do these people talk. Mm. Um, so you are you are making a number of calls about rhythm, but within quite a strong musical score that she's given you. Mm.
0: And so how would you describe the kind of structure of the evening? Because she's obviously, she's made very clear decisions. It's three acts, you, you have two intervals, uh, th- there are these moments where time seems to be kind of adjusting, and it's going very fast, and then sometimes it's going very slowly. Mm-hmm. Did you did you get uh, what is the overall shape that you th- think you found in rehearsal?
1: Well, each act has a slightly different shape, but I, yeah. I think she's always concerned with her work to kind of uh, educate is a slightly boring way of putting it, but to to help an audience appreciate what she wants them to be looking for mm. in the early scenes of her play. Right. So the, the first scene um, features nothing happening for quite a long time. <laughs> and then when it does happen, it's kind of truncated. And then you move into a second scene in, in which, again, um, there's no very great rush and no very great energy. So she's playing against Mm. Um, the sort of way in which you might expect a play to begin with a lot of narrative information yeah. about character mm-hmm. and story. she doesn't do, She very much doesn't do that and doesn't want to do that. She wants you to look at people in a different way and to look at the world in a different way. So I think that's what you have to go with. You have to go with creating time and focus Somehow, for an audience to look at the world in a different way, hmm. and it takes a while to get there. And she leaves you space for that in the first act, in which not a great deal happens. Right. Although the word, you know, the way that some people talk about this play, it's like nothing happens at all. Actually, this play is packed with <laughs> things going on, and. Um, it difficult emotional things going on. And so it's not like nothing happens in the play, it just takes it the time it takes for it to happen, Mm. I think.
0: I think one of the things that is extraordinary about the play and very surprising about the play is she's so good at talking about relationships that are corroding, Mm -hmm. where there are unresolved (laughs) problems in them and and the effect that can have. And I get, in a certain way, that's part of the it's part of the kind of weird realism of, of the play. It seems odd to describe a play like this as that's got this supernatural element as being realistic. But certainly in terms of the design, there is a real density of realism in what you've done. Could you talk a bit about how you sort of built that up? I don't know if there are any bits of the set that you want to <laughs> point out to us.
2: Nothing, nothing matches Right. at all. Um, like, none of the furniture goes together, but I think real houses, you, you buy things individually, so why would you, they right. can't match, really. Um, and I've got weirdly attached to so many things. <laughs> um, and some things are based on the real place. So the the very odd stone wallpaper is referenced from the real oh, place okay. in Gettysburg where Annie stayed. And Paris is really there. So they talk about this place called Paris, which is this end of the room, which is the breakfast room. Um, mm-hmm. So I looked a lot of real places to kind of think about how much things don't really go together in real life. And I think that the collision and harmony was what I was looking for all the time. And I think I've just about got there with the, the bad taste of harmony <laughs> zone. <laughs> <laughs> um, and sort of the delight of the tiny things all mixed together gives you a sense of a real adventure somewhere.
0: Do you have a favourite object on this? <laughs> that
2: that painting there, which is referred to in the play as my real granny, oh right, yeah, it was painted in the thirties and we copied it. So m- yeah, that's my biggest attachment because that's Granny right. Joy is there <laughs> playing a role. Um, so yeah, it's that's interesting,
0: interesting as well that it's a it's a play that demands quite a lot of very practical elements mm-hmm. on the set, like a snow globe and a pianola and. A, a space heater and a Christmas tree and things that really seem yeah. to kind of appear to really work, the jukebox as well. Um, is, that, is that a clue about the style of the play or is that just sort of a, a problem you have to deal with, do you think?
2: No, I wouldn't say problem. I'd say there was a, like a certain amount of mathematics involved in yeah. making sure that everyone can connect like the objects are in focus that need to be, and where they're placed on the stage, they're easy to read, so we know what's important, and we can read. That's so a lot of our process is kind of working that one out. The right.
1: reason we're sitting on this very low and uncomfortable couch hard, <laughs> is um, so that everybody can see the pianola behind it. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll and that's actually hole. on a
2: weird step.
1: Um, right. Th- th- it was quite nuts and bolts in the process mm. for a while, wasn't it? Just figuring out how you literally get to see everything you need to see. Right. Um, okay. She's writing for an American stage, and American stages are wider than our oh, stages, wow. as a rule. Wider than the Dorfman. Uh, right. Not a problem <laughs> for her, but we, we had to work slave away at that, didn't we? We
2: did, and to find secret crannies, so you can kind of imagine that the house goes off more places. It's right. one of our tasks as well. But
1: yeah, then there's another thing she does, which is brilliant. Of, of um, it's okay for people to go off stage, and you hear them off stage, yep. and you don't. see said, they're still um, there. <laughs> so we did that. We had to build a room upstairs for them to go into about twenty minutes before we came
0: on. I went. And did looked. you go in? Yeah, I went in. You there's looked an in the room. secret
1: room. It's fascinating. I'm afraid you won't be able to leave the building. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we're, we, we were that informed what we were doing a bit, wasn't it? We thought it's cool to, you can have a room there that people will occasionally go into, but right. not everybody can see. Right. And that's the thing I like in theatre as well, is the sense of a space carrying on beyond the, the theatre space.
0: But it's also, and this is partly why I think, we, I think of the house as a character, is it, it changes, doesn't it? There are, there are points when actually the architecture of the house seems to be rather flexible in a mm-hmm. strange way, or rooms start getting talked about mm. that some people ha- can't see and other people can. Uh, and and so it's very interesting to have, to actually have that, a very strong sense that the, there are people upstairs in another room. That's not a question, that's just a comment. Mm. Um, what I, I want to ask a little bit actually about lighting and I, I know you didn't actually design the lighting, but clearly there's a very close integration between I'd say more than usually close integration between the, the scenography and the, and the lighting. Um, how did you work together with Peter Mumford on that, and what were the kind of key decisions do you think you had well, to make? we
2: gave him a bit of a challenge, because <laughs> there isn't really anywhere to put any theatre lights. Right. <laughs> that huh. was, in many ways, a challenge for Peter. <laughs> um, but he's been brilliant about hiding things so that there are hidden lights, but I did just give him a cacophony of light-up objects, which was really fun. Um, yeah. lots of things light up. People see in the during the play. Lots of little secret things light up. Um, which, yeah, I don't know. He's brilliant at sort of conjuring. He's really used colour in a really amazing way. Mm. And time of day really moves through the piece, and that's very present mm. in the room. The windows are very key in that respect.
1: And he and I have done a lot of work on darkness mm. down the years. Right. We've done a lot of work on making things disappear. And we did on Circle Mirror as well, didn't and we? And we did on Circle Mirror, yeah. Right. Which, it, which is, it for this play, felt important.
0: And there's also that interesting, there's quite a lot of low-placed lighting, which creates that slightly creepy, <laughs> you know, upward-lit, big-shadowed yeah. world. I'm afraid that is all we've got time for. But can I ask you to join me in thanking Chloe Lamford and James McDonnell.